Good morning. My name is Emerson Barron. Going to be reading our passage this morning. Uh, the passage is uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter. Um, if you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles. Uh, this passage will be uh, on page 400 of that black pew Bible. Uh, feel free to, if you do not have a Bible, to, to accept one of those uh, pew Bibles as your own and uh, as a gift. Um, so if you would, follow along as I read uh, Nehemiah chapter 4. Um, if you're able to stand, we'd like you to stand as we read this. It's, it's, it's a considerable passage, but uh, let's stand and open our hearts to hear God's word together. Now when Samballot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they, will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sins be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is, is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At about that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, 
The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Emerson reads like he preaches, doesn't he? My name is Sergei Marchenko. I'm one of the pastors and elders here. I'd like to make a couple announcements and then we will release the children. We have our uh, regular equip gathering coming up on Saturday, which is March 12th at 9 o'clock, 9 to 11. This is a time for disciple makers to get together. So if you're investing in someone's life with the goal of helping them grow in Christ, whether it's an unbeliever you're witnessing to or a believer you're trying to help grow, you are welcome to come to that. We encourage you to come to that. It's a way for us to help you do it better, to share our experiences with one another and pray for each other. We also have our welcome lunch coming up next Sunday, March 13th, right after worship. If you're new to Chatham, we would love for you to come. So you can sign up at the Welcome Center right there in the foyer, and lunch will be provided. It's just a, it's an hour. We will get to know you better and share about our church. You get to ask your questions. We would love for you to come and meet us there. And now children between 2 and 8 years old are released for Children's Church. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful that you give us your scriptures, and we pray that you would open our hearts to understand what you have to tell us this morning. We pray that you would speak into each one of our circumstances in a powerful way, so we would be changed by your word, and we would be more focused on our Savior, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, this winter we've been uh, looking at the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's uh, it's really one book divided into two. There's a lot of similarities. And we've been following the story of the Jewish exiles coming back to Jerusalem from Babylon. They've been gone for a while, and now the Lord is returning them to their land. And is and now they're rebuilding. They're rebuilding the city. <coughs> the city, excuse me, they're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding their lives. They're rediscovering the law. All of that is happening, and all of that has to do, uh, something to do with our lives as well. I look at this church, and uh, as I'm getting to know many of you, I realize that some of you are dealing with tremendous life's difficulties, and you are rebuilding your life, picking up the pieces after a major life crisis. So this book applies to you, certainly. Many of us are engaged in the complex dysfunctions of our community, and so this book applies to us, and all of us are involved in rebuilding our church, and there's a lot that Ezra and Nehemiah have to tell us about that as well. Last week, we were challenged from Scripture to rise up and build, to engage in God's work of renewal. 
Now my hope was and is that if you were on the fringes, if you were considering whether you should or how you can get involved in God's work, that that sermon was helpful to you, that it motivated you and challenged you to be involved. This morning we're looking at the work itself. So let's say you have listened to me and you've listened to God and now you're you're encountering His call to be engaged and you are being involved and the question is what does it look like? How do we do that? So today we're looking at the work itself. We find that the people in Jerusalem are building the walls, building the gates, restoring the city. They are doing that work together as one community. They are well organized and led by Nehemiah. They are working in the face of incredible opposition. And they are working while trusting that God will fight for them. Now all of that put together makes me think that this this task of renewal, this task of restoration and rebuilding is impossible to accomplish and to maintain without God's help. God has to be strong for us. God has to fight for us. We need to trust that He will supply strength when we are weak. So our sermon in a sentence this morning is, the work of renewal can only be done in God's strength. The work of renewal can only be done in God's strength. Here's my outline. We're going to look at strength in community. Secondly, strength in conflict. Thirdly, strength in coherence. I'll explain what I mean by that. And fourthly, strength in the cross. So community, conflict, coherence, and the cross. As you can tell, this outline is brought to you by the letter C. (laughs) Jay Hotchkiss told me that he gets more fantasy preaching points if I alliterate my outline. So Coherence was a tough one to alliterate for me. All right, let's look at, at chapter 3. We didn't read it, but it's an important chapter not to overlook. In chapter 3, uh, we see a list of people. Nehemiah lists all sorts of people who work together, each taking a particular section of the wall, and they are working shoulder to shoulder, close to each other. In fact, the whole chapter is organized around this phrase, next to him or after him. So it's, it's shoulder to shoulder, it's next to people, they're working together. He, Nehemiah begins listing people from the sheep gate and then goes all around the city and ends at the sheep gate. So he lists everybody who's worked on the wall, we think. And what we see here is, is remarkable. You have people from different walks of life, of different classes, of of different genders, of different families. They're all working together on this one project. So, for example, we have priests and merchants and temple servants and goldsmiths and the Levites and rulers of districts all working together side by side building this wall. We have different families working together. Clans working together. We have men and women working together in Nehemiah 3.12, we read about Shalom, who got his daughters working on the wall. 
he must be like me and he has no sons and so he makes his daughters work on the wall. This verse speaks to me in particular. People who live in Jerusalem in the city and also people from other towns, other villages gather in the city and work together. And they eventually decide just to stay in the city while, while they're working, not even to go back home, sleeping in their clothes and working around the clock as much as possible. So it's a beautiful picture. I mean, to me, it's inspiring to read this. You see all these different people, all sorts of people coming together and they're committing to this one project and they're putting aside their differences and they're working together to accomplish a goal that God has set before them. Now, as you read the New Testament, you'll see the same picture. The church working together. Right? Living stones being built up as a spiritual house, Peter tells us. Or Paul tells us, like members of the body, all contributing to the well-being of the whole. All working together for the common goal. All finding their own place, their own section of the wall to commit to and to work on. I'd like to look at this community. I'd like us to look first that this community is based on individual humility. This kind of stuff doesn't happen unless each person individually decides to humbly participate in this work, decides to sacrifice what is important to them personally for the whole of the community. Each person must resolve to serve others and seek the good of the whole community, even if that means sacrificing their own preferences. Now, when we see this, and, and we're inspired, I'm inspired by that, and yet we see that not everybody participated. It's good that Nehemiah gives us a dose of reality here and shows us that not everybody was on board because it's never that everybody is on board. There's always somebody who's going to be opposing and complaining and not participating in God's work. So we see in Nehemiah 3.5, it tells us that next to them, the Tekoites, so a particular family, a particular clan, repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. So there was a part of that clan, the nobles, the leaders of that clan, that decided not to serve their Lord. Now, if you translate it literally, it means not to serve their lords. So maybe it's referring to God as sort of the plural majestic of God. Most likely, it is referring to the physical earthly leadership, probably Nehemiah himself. So some people said, well, we're not going to do what this Johnny come lately tells us, this highfalutin Persian official comes here, he's got this, all these grandiose plans, and it seems like he knows what he's doing. What are we? Why are we submit to him? And so they don't. And they do not participate in this rebuilding project. Petty pride prevents them from experiencing this amazing, remarkable community. Now the Tekoites, the rest of the clan, made up for the stubbornness of their nobles by taking on another section of the wall. This is in verse 27 of chapter 3. So they know it looks bad, and so they take on extra work to make up for their relatives. My previous ministry in Chicago, I came up with the term church ninja. Have you ever heard that term before? Of course you haven't. It's a unique term. Church ninja. 
When I say church ninja, I'm referring to someone who serves others in the church without drawing attention to themselves. Every church has church ninjas. Certain things get done every week, and most of us don't know who is doing them. We just know they're done. You show up to church on Sunday, and you see that certain things are, they look nice, things were vacuumed, they're put away, that the donuts are out, communion elements are out. Everything seems to be done. Now, who did that? Somebody did it. There were people who came in early who did it, and they're not drawing attention to themselves for doing that. Chatham has many church ninjas. There are many people who are working behind the scenes and and they have skills. You know, they do all these things that we, the rest of the body, appreciates. They serve us and they serve in humility and they serve sacrificially. So I'd like to acknowledge them today and I'd like to thank you if you're one of those people that very quietly and stealthily like a ninja, prepares all these things and does all these things in the church, we may not notice that and recognize that, but God does. And it matters to Him, and it matters to us too, even if we don't say it. So I want to say thank you, since we're on this topic. It's important that you serve in that way. It is a great gift to the church. Now secondly, community happens in pursuit of the common goal. Now, it happens because of the humility of the individuals, but it also happens as we all pursue something together. When uh, we moved to Chicago, this was eight, nine years ago, in our first month there, there was a tremendous storm, and we lost these two huge trees in front of the parsonage of the church, and it it was a big deal, it was this big crisis in the neighborhood. And because of the, the crisis, because everything just happened so quickly and there was so much damage done, you know, people, their cars were damaged, the power was down, you know, trees, we lost a couple of trees, all of that was just happened really quickly and unexpectedly. And so everybody was out. And we got to know all of our neighbors on that day. So we got to meet everybody on that day. And immediately we felt part of the community because we were all bound by a common experience. We were all pursuing a common goal of helping each other rebuild, in a sense. I got to meet people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. I had nothing else in common with them but the storm. And yet, because we had that common goal, we had that common experience, we felt close to each other, we felt committed to each other. There was a a sense of community and togetherness that was produced immediately by a storm. Now we see something like that in Nehemiah. There's a great critical situation. They have to rebuild. If they don't rebuild quickly, the enemies will take over. The temple might be destroyed. And so because of that sense of urgency, because of that common experience of coming back from the exile and rebuilding life in Jerusalem, and because of a common goal that Nehemiah sets before them and organizes them for the pursuit of that goal, there's community. Community just happened. And community in general happens when we pursue something or someone together. There was real community because the goal was important. Because there was real commitment behind the work from the people. And so if you are frustrated with the lack of community in your life, and I've had conversations like that with some of you here at Chatham, 
Certainly people on the side of Chatham who say, I, I just, I lack community. We all long for it. We crave for people who are close to us that we can share life with. So if you are in that boat and you're frustrated with the lack of community in your life, here is my advice. Don't pursue community for community's sake. Don't work on community. Find people who are pursuing Jesus. Stick with them and you will find community. So the answer to community in your life isn't actually the pursuit of community. It is the pursuit of something greater. And community naturally happens as you pursue someone greater. That's what we see here. All these different people coming together and they're working on the wall. They're working on rebuilding the city and community happens. They get close to each other. They get to know each other. So if you're lacking community, find others that are walking with Jesus, that are pursuing Him and join them. And as you live life in the same pursuit of Christ, you will experience deep relationships and genuine friendships and working through life issues together with others. Now that's strength that comes in community. Secondly, strength comes in conflict. As the city is being rebuilt, the enemies of God's people continue their opposition to the work. Now if you look at the seventh verse of Nehemiah 4, so Nehemiah 4, 7, there's a list of people and, and groups that opposed the rebuilding of the city. Now, let me, let me comment on that just a little bit, because you will see how bad it is. Sanballat and the Samaritans are to the north of Jerusalem. Tobiah and the Ammonites are to the east of Jerusalem. The Arabs are to the south. And the Ashdodites are to the west. So from each direction... The city of God is completely surrounded by enemies. This is where they build the city, right in the midst of this opposition. Everybody, literally, everybody around them, all the ethnic groups are against them. And they are building right in the midst of this conflict. All this hostility is towards them, and yet they are building a city together. Sanballat in verse 2 mocks the Jews. And it often starts with mockery and derision. He says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Referring to the temple and the sacrifices offered there. Will they finish up in one day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? He's mocking them. He's saying, what can you do? Look how weak you are. Can you really do this project? And then, of course, Tobiah joins in. He's sort of the yes man here. He joins in. He says, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Were you building like a fox? If a fox jumps on the wall, it's just all going to fall apart. And everybody goes, good one, Tobiah. Yeah, that's, that's good. Came up with a good one here. They're just ridiculing. They're threatening. They're intimidating. And we can relate to that, can't we? We live in a culture that mocks and ridicules Christians. In our society, it seems that the only thing that is allowed is intolerance towards Christians. 
We're tolerant about everything else, but you can beat up on the Christian. Nobody, nobody's going to say anything about that. We're used to that. We should be. We hear, what are these feeble Christians doing? Look how stupid they are to believe the Bible. How dare they claim there's only one way to God? Don't these bigots know how much harm they're causing by their missions and ministries and church services? We hear that. And part of it is normal. It's how it is. We are engaged in this conflict. It's not going to go away. We're not going to change that by passing laws. It's just how it is. People outside of the city do not want the city to be built. Just like the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites and the Samaritans all around, they don't want the city to be built. They don't want God's people there. They don't want the temple there. So they're going to use whatever means possible to discourage them, to intimidate them, and even to threaten violence on them. And of course, mockery is the beginning stage, but it often goes to intimidation and often leads to violence. Certainly in many parts of the world, that is the reality. Christians live knowing that any day that mockery and intimidation may turn into violence. And they may lose their lives, they may lose their families, they may lose their property. That is the reality for many Christians in the world. Now here in Nehemiah, the enemies of God's people do everything short of attacking the city. Now they threaten, they never do at this particular story probably because they know that the king has approved the project. Nehemiah doesn't come on his own authority. He has letters from the king that protect him and protect this work. But we should not at all be surprised that there's opposition to our work. In fact, the normal mode of Christian ministry is progress in the midst of opposition. The normal mode of Christian ministry is progress in the midst of opposition. The builders in Nehemiah understand the nature of their work. They work with one hand, right? Laying bricks with one hand, holding a sword or a spear with the other. What a cool picture. They're working. They haven't stopped working. And yet they're ready to engage in conflict whenever necessary. They work while listening for the trumpet to sound and gather them to fight. Now, Nehemiah organized them. There is, there is a, a level of organization that, that is at play here. Nehemiah is a good manager. He knows how to handle people. So he puts the right people at the right spots. He distributes the weapons. He appoints one man to sound the trumpet when they see the enemy approaching so everybody could gather at that part of the wall. And so he trains them to work and fight at the same time. Now, that's our normal experience. As we work, as we pursue God's goals in our lives, we must expect opposition and we must be ready to engage in warfare. The presence of the opposition does not tell us that we should not be doing something. In fact, often it proves that that is the right thing to do. There's a peculiar verse in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8 and 9. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. It's it's an interesting verse. I've thought about it often. Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. 
And there are many adversaries. He says, a wide door for effective ministry has been opened to me. When I hear that, I'm, I'm thinking, this is amazing, there are no problems. You know, God is just opening doors for everything. And yet, he says, there are many enemies, there are many adversaries. Many oppose what I'm doing. And yet, there's an open door. That's the Christian reality. That is normal for us. To say that God is opening this opportunity for ministry here. And yet, there are many who oppose us. There are many obstacles. There are many people who don't want to see that happen. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7 and following, Paul describes this reality. He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It is a beautiful passage, and it is paradoxical. How do we reconcile those two realities in our life? That death is working in us so that life could be given to someone else. That we are persecuted and, and, and all these things are happening against us and yet exactly through that God works. That our strength is revealed in our weakness. That all of that is given to us so that nobody from outside would say that they did it, but that everybody would say God did it. This is how God works. Strength comes in the midst of conflict. Strength comes in our weakness. Strength happens inexplicably, unimaginably, so that God would get the glory. This is normal for us. Jesus was persecuted and so are we. Our strength comes in weakness. Now, Nehemiah is exactly in the same situation. He is working. He sees that a great opportunity has been opened to him. He's got the, the favor of the king. They can rebuild the city. The temple could be secure. The Jews could thrive as a nation. Religious heritage could be maintained. All of those things are happening. And yet, literally on every side of the city, there are enemies who are just waiting to attack and destroy what they're doing. How does he respond to that? Now, it's an unusual response. And this is where we need to be biblical. We need to wrestle with these kind of passages. Verses 4 and 5 in Nehemiah 4. When he hears the mockery, of Sanballat and Tobiah. Nehemiah prays, and he prays this prayer. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. He's not asking God to forgive them. He's not asking God to change them. He's asking God to punish them. He's asking God to be just and to be wrathful 
towards the enemies of God's people? Are you surprised at his response? Shouldn't we pray for our enemies and turn the other cheek? Yes, we should. Jesus tells us to do that. However, it is also true that those who oppose God's people and thus they oppose God himself can count on nothing less than his fierce and unrelenting judgment. Those that provoke God to anger will get anger from God. This is Nehemiah's prayer. This is not the only prayer we can pray, but this is one of the prayers we must be praying. Calling on God to be just. Calling on God to protect and vindicate His people. Now we need to put it, of course, in the larger context of Scripture. And the best that I can do that is when somebody hurts you, right? It's appropriate to forgive and to love and to let go and to forget and to turn your other cheek. But when somebody provokes God to anger, when somebody goes against God, it makes sense to pray that God would be just to them. Yes, pray that God would be merciful too, but pray that God would be just. Now these prayers... We've talked a little bit about that, I think, as we work through some of the Old Testament passages. These prayers are foreign to us in the West in this culture. But believe me, these prayers are being prayed by many Christians today in many parts of the world. Because they see evil in their lives, and they see the enemy, and they pray for justice. They don't necessarily take justice into their own hands. But they pray that God would judge. God is a just God. And it is part of reflecting on His attributes is to pray prayers like that. Matthew Henry said, Those that cast contempt on God's people do but prepare everlasting shame for themselves. Anyone who opposes God will be judged unless Jesus is judged for them. Now let's look at the strength in coherence. There is strength that comes through community. There is strength that comes in the midst of conflict. And there is strength that comes in coherence. What I mean by that is that there is a coherent worldview that Nehemiah has. There is a consistent understanding of how God works that gives Nehemiah strength in the midst of this difficult work we see an illustration of how God's sovereignty and human responsibility work together. Now, any Christian, every Christian has wrestled with this question. How is it that God is in control and yet I am commanded to do certain things? How is it that God is completely in charge of everything and yet I am responsible for my own sin? We have an illustration of how those two things fit together here in Nehemiah. And bringing those together and finding a harmonious, coherent way of understanding that and even more so applying that to your life will bring strength in the midst of your work. So look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah 4.9 He said, We prayed to our God and set a guard. They prayed, they asked God for help, and then they set a guard. 
They set a soldier to protect the city. Verse 14, Nehemiah tells the people, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers, fight for your families, fight for your homes. In verse 20, Nehemiah proclaims, Our God will fight for us. And yet, he has distributed the weapons and he's already set up a trumpeter to rally the troops. Both things are at play. There's a great trust in God's sovereignty and God's power. And there's also a responsibility to take up arms and to continue building and to do what God has called them to do. Derek Kidner, a commentator on Ezra and Nehemiah, says, The partnership of heaven and earth, of trust and good management, is taken for granted as something normal and harmonious. For Nehemiah, those two things came together. They were balanced. They were united. There was no contradiction. There was no tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. He was able to see it as part of one complete harmonious whole. So on the one hand, the people's confidence in God's power was not leading them to passivity. They didn't stop working. They didn't stop fighting. They didn't put down their arms. But on the other hand, their active pursuit of God's will does not lead to arrogance and self-reliance. So they're praying and they're working. right? They're trusting God, but they're also organizing themselves. They're calling people to remember who God is, but then they're also breaking down, breaking into smaller groups to be able to man the wall. Both things are happening here, and both things should be happening in the Christian life. Now, we fall into extremes, typically. I know I had a friend who, at one point in his life, and he had a family, he just stopped working. And he said, I'm just going to pray, and each day I'm going to go to the mailbox and expect that God would provide for my family. To which I said, you are crazy. You cannot do that. That is disobedient for you to do that. Why would I say that? He prayed. He trusted God. I think it was imbalanced. He prayed, but he didn't work. And then, of course, we have pastors like me, right? And all pastors struggle with that. That you get so busy and you get so involved in, in, in the work of the ministry that you stop praying and you stop reading the Bible. You stop trusting God. You start trusting your own efforts. Those are two extremes. Some pray and don't work, and some work and don't pray. And we need to bring it together. The Benedictine monks have a motto. Pray and work. Ora et labora. Pray and work. The whole life in Benedictine monasteries is organized around these two things. You pray and you work. You invest in the spiritual disciplines, but you also invest in manual labor. And Benedict at some point figured out this was the recipe for true Christian spirituality. Yes, we are mystics, but we're also activists. We pray. We must pray. We must know who God is firsthand experientially. We must know the scriptures, which means we must read the scriptures. And yet we also work. We organize, we preach, we gather, we have ministry teams, we have various ministries in the church, we are engaged in various organizations in the community. Both are right, both are true, 
But both have to be brought into one coherent worldview. And so let me address a couple of abuses of this idea. Some of you, I'm pretty sure right now, are thinking, that sounds like God helps those who help themselves. Right? No. No. That is not at all what I'm saying. That's a very bad idea, and it's a, it's a terrible theology to embrace. That if I just do certain things, if I just... If I just do enough good things, then God will sort of help me to get the rest of it. That's not the right way to think. Nor is it right to think, well, now it's up to God. I did my part, and now, God, you'll just, you'll just have to do the rest. That is another terrible cliche to use. That's not the right way of thinking. God does all of this. It is not as if God and I sit down and we divide up the work. That is not how God works. God is in charge of all of that. God ultimately accomplishes all of that work. And yet we participate in His work and we do it wholeheartedly, single-mindedly with all our energy. Both are true. God is completely in control. And yet we need to be responsible for the commandments that He gave us. We must be fully engaged in His work, all the while knowing that He is completely in control. Now let me give you an example of how it works out. Evangelism is a good way to think through these issues. Scripture teaches us that it is God who changes a person's heart so they can accept the gospel and be saved. It's a clear teaching of the Scriptures. That anybody who comes to Christ... He does so because the Holy Spirit has given them a new nature. They've been born again. They've been regenerated so now they can actually see Christ for who He is and accept Him and love Him and follow Him. This is God's work. God the Holy Spirit does that. And yet, God commands us to speak the gospel to others. God tells us to go and share the gospel with other people. Preach to every creature about Jesus. So there's both this clear teaching that God changes people's hearts and it is only through that that anybody becomes a Christian and yet we too are supposed to go and share the gospel with others. So some people look at that and they fall one to one side or the other. Some say, well, if God is completely in control of all that, why should I do anything? God will save whoever He wishes. He doesn't need me to do it. Sure, He doesn't need you to do it, but He commands you to do it. And so others would say, okay, since God commands me to do it, then I better preach the gospel to anybody I see, everybody I see, because if I don't, they will go to hell. That's another extreme. How do you bring those in balance? For a biblical Christian, we must believe both in unconditional election and indiscriminate evangelism. For a biblical Christian... We both need to embrace both the unconditional election and indiscriminate evangelism. That it is God who chooses and it is God who saves, and yet we are to preach the gospel to everybody indiscriminately. We don't know whom God has chosen. What belongs to us is the commandment. What belongs to God is the work. And so we respond by being fully engaged in God's work, all the while knowing that it is His work and He accomplishes His purposes. 
Well, finally, strength comes in the cross. All these themes, individual humility in pursuit of the good of the community, progress in the midst of conflict, powerful combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility, all these things, these themes converge on the cross. Ultimately, our strength comes from the cross of Jesus. Is it not our Lord who came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many? Isn't the cross of Jesus the greatest example of individual sacrifice for the sake of the whole community? On the cross, we see Jesus' weakness. We see Him mocked and ridiculed and hurt and finally killed. And yet it was through His weakness even his death, that the greatest victory was won. The wrath that all God's enemies deserve, all God's enemies, including us, that Nehemiah rightly prayed for in accordance with God's nature and God's promises, that wrath was poured out on God's Son. He was punished so we can be forgiven. He became weak so we can be strong. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility intersect on the cross of Christ. When Peter, the Apostle Peter, preached to the people gathered in the city of Jerusalem on Pentecost, this is in Acts 2, he said, Peter said, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see how both things are true? According to God's deliberate, definite plan and God's exhaustive foreknowledge, Jesus was crucified. This was God's doing. And yet, Peter says, you crucified him and you killed him, pointing to the human responsibilities. And both of those cohere together in one glorious gospel. Yes, Jesus died because of our sin. Yes, we can say that we killed Him because of our sin. Yes, He was on the cross because of us. And yet, it was because God wanted to save us that Jesus came. It was because God decided that He would save His enemies and He would send His Son who would take the punishment, He would take the wrath, so we could be forgiven. Both things are true. Both things come together in the gospel. Out of the scandal and violence of the cross, what seemed meaningless at the time, salvation came to the world. If you are engaged in God's work of renewal, I am imploring you to look to the cross of Christ for strength. You will see at the cross how community is made. As we look at the cross together, we will find community. As you look at the cross, we can continue making progress in the midst of opposition. By looking at the cross, we can pray and work and not err on either side of that. By looking at the cross, we can rebuild our lives and our church and even our community. Now we come to the table this morning 
And we see the gospel displayed. We see exactly what we're talking about here presented to us through physical means. The meaning of the cross is given to us here at communion. His body was broken to give life to many. His blood was spilled to welcome us into a relationship with God. We come to this table together as one community in pursuit of one goal. There's something beautiful about us walking together to the table, us walking side by side, shoulder to shoulder, us sharing communion with one another. We come asking for strength in the work of renewal. So if you are a Christian, you're welcome at this table. This is meant to help you. This is meant to supply strength for you, whatever circumstances you find yourself in. If you are not a Christian, this table isn't for you. And that's not because we're mean. It's not because we don't want you to be part of our community. We desperately want you to be part of our community. But you don't come to the table first, you come to Jesus first. And so I encourage you to look at the cross for the first time maybe in your life. Look at the cross. Look what happened. Look what Jesus, your Savior, did for you. And whatever need you brought here today, whether it's your need for community or need for a coherent worldview or need for encouragement, the answer is always in the cross of Jesus. There's a... This will sound weird, I'm sorry, but... Jillian decorated, redecorated my office, which I welcome all of you to come and see. And, and she was looking online for pictures of certain people I wanted displayed in, in my office. And one of them is Carl Bart, which you've heard me quote before. There's a pillow you can buy. And I'm not asking to buy it for me, I'm sorry. This is, this is now I'm saying this. But there's a pillow that has a picture of Carl Bart and says, and says Jesus is the answer. What was the question? That is my whole philosophy of ministry. <laughs> Whatever question you have, whether you're looking for community, whether you're looking for encouragement, whether you're looking for a coherent worldview, it is found in Jesus and it is found in Him crucified. So if you're not a believer, go to Him. Go to Him. Recognize the divine sovereignty that Jesus is meant for you, that God sent him for you, that he called you to be here on this Sunday morning and hear this message so you could be saved. And yet exercise human responsibility through faith and repentance. Not like the nobles of Tekoi, who were not stoop to submit to their lords. You stoop and submit to Christ. And you commit your life to him today. Let me pray. Our Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for your justice. We praise you for your mercy. We praise you that you are completely in control, sovereign over all, and yet that you engage us to be part of your work, that you command us to participate and you give us meaningful tasks to accomplish for your glory. Father, we praise you that in the midst of our weakness, your strength is revealed. That as we struggle, as we try to fulfill our work, you supply grace to us. Whether it's through community, whether it's mystically in the time of conflict, 
whether it through an intellectual understanding of how your things fit together, how your truths fit together. You are there to help us and to strengthen us so we could do what you have called us to do. Father, we remember what you did in Jesus. We remember that Jesus came and though being fully God and remaining fully God, became fully human, lived a life of perfect obedience to your law, suffered unjustly, was declared guilty though remaining innocent, was tortured and tried and crucified for our sins. And yet he rose again, declaring forgiveness and amnesty to us, declaring that we now can receive strength from you when we need it, that we can live a life that is pleasing to you even now, possessing righteousness of Christ, being fully accepted with you through him. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us understand it better, understand it deeper. As we look at the cross today, help us be encouraged, help us find the answer to the questions we may be asking this morning. Father, I pray that you would also accept our confession. We are people that often do things out of balance. We are the kind of people that often want to be strong in ourselves, that dislike conflict and opposition, that do not want to work together with others. We are sinful. We are broken. We pray for your help. Heal us and help us. I pray that here at Chatham, there will be the kind of community focused on the same goal of pursuing Jesus, overcoming obstacles together for your sake, that would make our neighbors marvel at who you are and recognize that it is by your strength and for your glory that whatever happens here happens. Lord, I pray that our testimony would be powerful to others on the outside. And I pray that you would draw many into our community so they can know Jesus in him crucified. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. As we sing, I encourage you to come forward. You can take communion up front. You can take it back with you to your seats if you need to meditate more and pray and confess. Those who are on the balconies are welcome to come forward where you are. There are tables set up for you to take the Lord's Supper there as well. Let's do it together.